How is it that so few scientists are known publicly in Australia? You may have heard Dr Kat Moss reveal that only one female scientist's name is in the curricula of schools here, and that was Rosalind Franklin, not an Australian. But most scientists are unfamiliar here. Georgina Ferry, biographer of the renowned novelist Dorothy Hodgkin, and a writer who appears in the journal Nature, has an opinion, which may surprise you. Yeah, there's an awful lot wrapped up in that. First of all, you talked about superstars. I mean, unfortunately, Dorothy Hodgkin is the only British woman who's ever won a Nobel Prize for science. And so a difficulty with writing about somebody who's that kind of stratospheric is that exactly as you say, people will think, well, I could never be like that. So to what extent are they a role model? But yes, I think what you're driving at is that you need to dig into their lives. And that's why I love writing about the lives of scientists, because you discover that they don't just go into the lab and have a brilliant idea and it's all wonderful. They work bloody hard. They have setbacks. They deal with them. And for Dorothy Hodgkin, yes, she she had a big setback. She was trying to solve the structure of a protein, a big complex molecule. And you simply couldn't do it at the time. So we're talking about the 1950s. You couldn't do it without massive computation. And massive computation didn't exist. It was just beginning to exist. And she had been able to use computers at other institutions, old-fashioned adding machines, but that was really laborious. And so when electronic computers came along, she wanted to persuade Oxford University that it ought to set up a computing service. Cambridge already had one. Oxford didn't have one. And so they gave her the job of choosing a computer to buy. And she looked at, I think there were about eight companies in the UK at that time that were making computers. And computers, you have to remember, they cost about £3 million. In those days' money, I mean, not in today's money, in those days' money, that was an awful lot of money for a university to spend. And they took up several rooms. They were vast, great things. And they had less power than you have in your watch today or your phone. But she looked at all these different computers, and one of them indeed had been actually based on the Cambridge University computer but developed by Jay Lyons and Co, who ran a chain of tea shops. I'm particularly interested in that because I went on to write a book about the Lyons computer because that's another lovely story in itself. But no, she built, there was a company called Ferranti. She persuaded the university to get money out of the University Grants Commission to buy a Ferranti Mercury. And the X-ray crystallographers, which is what her field was, were among a very small group of scientists within Oxford at the time who thought they needed a computer at all. Apparently the physicists were asked and they said, (laughs) no, we can't really see that we're going to need one. It was the statisticians and the X-ray crystallographers who said, yes, we really, really need computers. And obviously everybody came around in the end. What I really loved about Dorothy Crawford Hodgkin, not that I saw her more than about a couple of times, but I think it was well 40 years ago. I think Brezhnev was in charge in Russia, and I was escaping Russia at the time on a short visit, and I bounced off Heathrow and went to North Oxford on a farm, I think it was, she was living, and her house was full of refugees from, I think, Czechoslovakia, as they called it. She was doing quietly those sorts of things as well as working as you described. There were so many there, and she treated it as a a normal everyday thing, didn't she? As a family, they were incredibly hospitable. I mean, her concern 
for the plight of anybody who lived in any kind of oppressive regime was absolutely genuine. She had a lot of scientists from developing countries working in her lab. Until the Cultural Revolution, she had Chinese scientists working in her lab, and she developed relationships with Chinese scientists and visited China actually all the way through the period when China was technically closed and compared notes with Chinese scientists who were working in the same field as hers. But yes, she and her husband, Thomas, and their daughter, Liz, they have this completely unselfish approach to recognising that others have needs that they Mm -hmm. can fulfil. And she was one of those. So yes, she cared passionately about international equality. She cared passionately about peace and was vehemently opposed to any kind of nuclear escalation violently opposed to the war in Vietnam. And again, she also visited North Vietnam. She had lots of Vietnamese friends. I mean, the people who came to her, I think it was her 80th birthday party, was just an extraordinary mixture of people. She knew that her Nobel Prize, which she won in 1964, would open doors. And although she was very quietly spoken and gave the impression of being quite a reticent, reserved person, but she had this determination to act on behalf of causes that she felt strongly about Mm. and knew that her aura as a Nobel Prize winner would enable her to do that. Occasionally when we've talked before, it's about John Cornforth. You said that Dorothy Hodgkin is the only woman in Britain to win a Nobel Prize for Science. Well, Sir John Cornforth, now no longer with us, is the only person from New South Wales to get one in science. And he was deaf for most of his life. And you met him, I think, and you met his wife in tandem. I did, his wife Rita. So, I mean, they have a lovely story in that they both won 1851 scholarships, which were scholarships for, I think, for people from across the Commonwealth to come to the UK and do graduate work. And they were both on a, a ship coming over from Australia, and that's how they met, both chemists both obviously extremely able, they'd won this scholarship, and they fell in love and married and lived happily ever after. But Rita was not only his collaborator scientifically, she acted as his ears, because he was, as you say, profoundly deaf. And on the occasion I met them, we sat at a long table, he was at one end, I was at the other, and Rita was in the middle. And she relayed my questions to him, because he was used to lip-reading her, and I could obviously hear his answers. So... They were an extraordinary couple. And I met them to talk about Dorothy Hodgkin because I think an amusing story about John Cornforth is that Dorothy Hodgkin worked on the three-dimensional structure of penicillin. That was the first important molecule that she solved. And the organic chemists in Oxford, Cornforth was in Oxford at the time, had conflicting views about what the structure was going to be like. There were two alternatives. And Cornforth sided with the professor of organic chemistry, Robert Robinson. They said that it was going to be this one structure. And Dorothy Hodgkins thought it was going to be another one, which is called a beta-lactam structure. And Cornforth said that if it turned out to be beta-lactam structure, he would give up science and grow mushrooms. (laughs) And it did turn out to be the beta-lactam structure. (laughs) But he didn't give up science and grow mushrooms, fortunately. (laughs) He went on to win his own Nobel Mm. Prize. So role models, the fact that they're interesting people, not just sometimes described anoraks or funny little people just looking at screens all the time, being um, slightly, no, more than slightly eccentric and therefore not like us. And so that they get more recognition, especially at times when now we need more science than ever to solve some of these gigantic problems. But also in many ways, it seems to me that the scientists are fun to know about 
and what can we do really to get to know them better? A lot of it is down to the scientists. I mean, they tend to be very suspicious of the media. I can't tell you how many conferences on science and the media I've been to at which the scientists present often spend their whole time complaining about how the, oh, the media gets it wrong, they dumb it all down. And it is just a question of the two sides not understanding each other's perspective. And I think it's absolutely critical that scientists put a bit of effort into trying to see what the world looks like from the perspective of somebody who doesn't have a degree in maths or chemistry or physics or one of these subjects, what are the things that matter to them? Showing how the work that they're doing as scientists relates to that. And I mean, I think an area where that's increasingly important is climate change, because we are all going to be affected. We are already being affected by climate change. And I think it's been very difficult for scientists to get across how urgent the problem is, partly because a lot of the data is quite uncertain. It's getting more and more certain, but understanding probability is something that doesn't come naturally to people who aren't trained in the subject, and so you need to get that idea across. The other thing I really want to mention is that people might have the perception, I mean, there are these studies that were done back in the 60s, getting children to draw a picture of a scientist, and they all draw a picture of a crazy white man with lots of hair doing mysterious things with bottles. They don't put people of colour, they don't put women but they also just put them by themselves. And I think what people really need to understand is that science is a very, very collaborative enterprise. It's not something you do, apart from maybe some very obscure corners of theoretical physics where you might just sit in a room with a computer by yourself. But most of science, you need a team. You need lots of people with different expertise all working together to solve a problem. And it's really social. I mean, people who work in labs are constantly going out for beers together. They bring cakes into the lab. They support each other. They have champagne when they get a big result. They're really very, very social people. Georgina Ferry, biographer of Dorothy Hodgkin and writer for the journal Nature. And yes, I can confirm that scientists are hardline ravers of the top kind, but tend to keep that secret. The Science Show on RN.